How do the digital age and its values affect the life of Christians and the church? Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and welcome to the God Story podcast. Our very special guest on the show this time is Jay Kim, who is the lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley in the States, and who is on the leadership team of the Regeneration Project. His writing has been featured in Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, and Relevant Magazine. His latest book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, is called Analog Christian. Great title, that. Analog Christian. For those of us who are old enough to remember vinyl and analog recording technology, which is me, yes. probably not you. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Cultivating contentment, resilience, and wisdom in the digital age. Indeed, and we need all of that. Jay, hi. Welcome from the States. Thank you so much for having me, Brent. Glad oh, to be on. It's a pleasure. Now, what actually is the matter with all this digital technology anyway? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, because of the title of my book. Um, people assume that I'm trying to make a blanket sort of argument against all things digital, uh, but I'm not. I actually, you know, the way I would answer your question is that nothing really is necessarily the matter with digital technology, although there's a lot to say about that, you know, algorithms and the sort of inherent design of social media, for sure. But generally speaking, the argument I'm really trying to make is that there's actually something the matter with us, that we as human beings have a propensity. And this existed long before the digital age, but has been accelerated, I think, in the digital age. We humans have a propensity for taking technologies at our disposal, whatever tools, technological tools are before us, and often um, misusing or even abusing said tools. And then that sort of inverts and turns in on itself and, and ends up really harming us. Even tools that were designed originally to help us because of our misuse and abuse often harm us. And I think in so many ways that is happening with digital technologies in particular, especially in the age of social media. And I think the starting point of this book, if I remember correctly, is your own personal experience with a digital technology during the pandemic. So can yes. I ask, ask you, can I ask you first how the pandemic personally affected you? Sure. Well, I think it affected me in a way that it affected a lot of people. Um, First, I'm a fairly introverted person. I'm a personal sort of private person. I enjoy solitude. Um, so when we went on lockdown in March of 2020, at least in my part of the world, uh, to be very honest, there was a part of me that was really looking forward to it. I just thought, well, this will actually be quite nice. You know, I can just work from the comfort and quiet of my own home. Um, I'll be able to just log on and log off as I me too. And then it, I'll just be working in an environment that is quiet and, and spacious, you know, and private. Uh, but I found myself very quickly into the pandemic um, struggling to reckon with the isolation in a way that I really did not expect. So uh, what I tell people, and I think this will resonate with a lot of folks, the pandemic was not the cause necessarily of so much of the, the sort of rising tide of discontentment and fragility and foolishness that I was wrestling with in my life. What the pandemic was, was like a great revealer, you know, not the cause, but a revealer. 
uh, it was clarity offered to me on a platter. You know, here it is. Here's the stuff that's been coming undone in you for a long time now. And this season of forced isolation and strictly digital reality and experience and interaction is revealing just how much discontentment and fragility and foolishness was already sort of buzzing, uh, you know, in, in the sort of bedrocks of my life. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to say to that, but uh, that's sort of how it affected me. Yeah. How did the pandemic affect our consumption of digital technology, do you think? Well, it forced us into a situation where uh, our our relational and content diet became almost strictly digital, right? We couldn't physically be together. So even our relationships, even some of our most uh, cherished and personal and close and intimate relationships had to be mediated by digital technologies. And I think what that did was it revealed the intrinsic human need uh, for embodied humans to need embodied realities. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot was written about Zoom fatigue, you know, Zoom, this incredibly um, dynamic tool that, you know, you and I are using right now mm -hmm. to have uh, a conversation, though we are literally a world apart, you know? So uh, in, in some ways, uh, my appreciation for the tools increased or it deepened, but in other ways, they revealed the the very stark limitations of these tools that digital uh, mediums cannot connect us in the most human of ways. And that especially in relationships where we really care and we feel deeply intimately connected to one another, um, digital tools and digital technologies are great mediators in the temporary sense, uh, but they will never satisfy, again, that intrinsic need that embodied humans have to share embodied experience with one another. How does the technology we use use us? Yeah, this gets back to uh, what I touched on very briefly earlier, where maybe there is also some responsibility on the technology, especially today in, in the age of social media, there's a lot been written, you know, in recent years. And, you know, you think about the famous news story that happened, you know, maybe a year ago with Frances Haugen, who was the, uh, the whistleblower from Facebook, where she revealed that Facebook is quite aware of the way their algorithms accentuate vitriolic content, um, anger and outrage, and that they are essentially, and I'm not, you know, here to specifically critique Facebook necessarily, but what that story revealed to us was that social media companies, you know, they, they care as most businesses do, do and should probably, they care really essentially about the bottom line and the bottom line is dollars and cents. And so for social media companies, dollars and cents are generated by engagement. And what they have found based on human psychology and other dynamics is engagement increases exponentially so when uh, the engagement is based on anger, outrage, vitriol, um, you know, things like cancel culture could not have existed before uh, the social media age. And so in, in some ways, if we are not intentional about leveraging digital technologies, social media in particular, with a lot of deep thought, 
and intentionality and discipline than the than the technologies will use us you know um the design ethicist tristan harris he, he's most famous for being a part of the the netflix documentary the social dilemma but he was doing this work long before that um you know he sort of coined that phrase and that idea uh he he says that you know, most people think social media is free because you can just go in the app store on your phone, download it. They charge you nothing. And there you are. You enter this incredible world of social media. But he says if any, nothing is free. So if something is free to you, that means you are the product. Right. <laughs> That's what Tristan Harris says. And I think that gets at the point is essentially um if we are not careful, if we're not cautious, if we're not thoughtful, then uh, social media and, and digital tools in, in general, they will, instead of us using them, they will use us. They will leverage our attention uh, to commodify, you know, our attention, our allegiance, our affection, our addiction, essentially. Um, so, uh, you know, but that's not the only way forward. What I'm not arguing for is, is that people need to become Luddites and throw away their phones and live on a farm and, you know, grow crop and raise cattle and turn their own butter. You don't, unless you're called to live that sort of life, sounds like a beautiful life actually. But, you know, most of us are not called to that sort of rural life. But even if we are not, there is a way in which we can make sure that our engagement with technology is again, thoughtful and disciplined and intentional so that uh, the tools don't use us and com commodify our attention. And instead, we're able to leverage the tools um, with redemptive edge, you know, to bring something of meaning and joy and goodness and love uh, into those spaces. And this is why you you center the book really around the fruits of the spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. All things that I immediately associate with Twitter, not <laughs> that's right facebook that's right i mean i mean our social media is is often directing us to act and directly the opposite to the fruits of the spirit yes. isn't it? so how how can the fruits of the spirit then help us deal with the negative because i think this is fa fabulous what you've what you've said how can the fruits of the spirit help us deal with the negative effects of all this social media and digital technology which i think is fantastic you know but yeah. you're actually right in what you say about the dangers of it yeah yeah, I mean, I you know what I what I propose in the book is that there are are a variety of symptoms from our digital addictions, things like self-centric despair, comparison, contempt, impatience, hostility, forgetfulness, outrage, indulgence, reckless indulgence. And um those those sort of symptoms, uh, they're not hypothetical for me. They they're all symptoms that I've I've felt, you know, I've, I've sort of experienced that sort of undoing of my soul and my personhood in my own life because of my own digital addictions and proclivities. And so what I realized as a follower of Jesus and as somebody who, who takes very seriously the scriptures and believe it has the power to, to that God has the power to transform our lives through his truth and his word. Um, what I realized very quickly is that the fruit of the spirit, the sort of beautiful characteristics or virtues that are born of the fruit of the spirit in us, they stand in stark opposition to each of these symptoms of the digital age, you know, love instead of despair, joy instead of comparison, peace instead of contempt, patience instead of impatience, kindness and goodness instead of hostility, faithfulness instead of forgetfulness, gentleness instead of outrage, self-control instead of reckless indulgence. And so um, in, in many ways, you know, I think the key is to remember these are fruit. This is the fruit of the spirit. 
In other words, it is the fruit belongs to the spirit of God, meaning it is fruit that we cannot generate in and of ourselves. So in a nutshell, to answer the original question, what we have to do to, um, you know, resist and confront all of these negative symptoms of the digital age and our digital addictions is to invite the spirit of God on a daily moment by moment basis to bear fruit in us and then to partner with him with intentionality, with discipline, with practice to partner with him in caring for the soil so that that fruit might grow and develop over time. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it really is living an invitational life inviting the spirit of God to do the work that only he can do uh, by developing and cultivating that fruit um, in our lives. Yes, I'd like to come on and deal with uh, a few of the, we can't deal with them all, but but one or two of the fruits of the spirit in our in our sure. discussion, well, because it throws up the, uh, the social media part of it as well. How has the internet fed a growth in isolationism, do you think? Well, the internet by its nature, you know, you think about 25 years ago when the internet became sort of began to become ubiquitous in, in, you know, modern global life. One of the great promises that the internet made is that it would create a global village by interconnecting us to one another, that we would become connected in a way that we never have been before. And that promise has proven both true and false. It's proven true that yes, the internet, the internet has connected us in ways that we've never been connected before. But where that promise has fallen, not just short, but proven false, is that it would create a global village. It has not created a global village. It has created uh, increased levels of fracturing, separation, and distance apart from one another. And I think there's lots of reasons for this, but I think one of the reasons is that we did not reckon with the frailty and brokenness of the human condition. We did not reckon with the fact that when we individually sort of placed ourselves behind screens and disembodied our engagement with one another, the temptation to allow the worst in us to bubble to the surface as we safely hid behind the 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 walls the safety of the these digital walls that kept us somewhat anonymous we did not reckon with the fact that that would actually accentuate and hyperactivate the most broken parts of us you know and and very practically what i mean by that is as an example it is so much easier for me to to type a handful of nasty words to someone than it is for me to stand in front of that person and say those words. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is why it's, you know, you think about how gossip works, right? When we gossip, which is sinful, when we gossip, we say things about people in ways that we would never say them directly to them. This is almost always true. Well, it's the same exact thing, except hyper elevated and accelerated and accentuated when it comes to the digital age. We we hide behind these digital walls and it's like, you know, digital courage. You just start saying things that are so nasty and so mean because you feel like you're doing it safely behind the sort of veil of 
of distance. And so that's one of many reasons. But um, yeah, I just don't think we thought deeply enough about what this would do to us culturally and societally. Yeah. Okay. okay. The first of the fruits of the Spirit, love. How does God's love, do you think, lead us out of this, what you call self-centric despair? How does God's love lead us out of this isolationism? Yeah, a lot to say about that. So first, I think we have to begin with, um, you know, by confronting uh, sort of pop culture, pop psychology versions of love, which essentially tell you that love is butterflies in the stomach. It's a spark of emotion. It's a feeling, an emotion that you feel, you know? Um, And then when that feeling is gone, the love must be gone. This is why people whose marriages end, they say things like, well, the spark is gone. So what they assume is that must mean I don't love this person anymore. Biblically speaking, though, love is an act of will. It's a commit, you know, Thomas Aquinas famously once said, Love is to will the good of the other, even at great expense to the self. You know, you think about, you know, the the, the scriptures themselves in First John, when the writer tells us this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. Love is about going first. Love is about uh, risking um, the lack of reciprocity, that the person may not reciprocate, you know, your extension of love. That's real love. Love is when I um, care for my children, though they really offer nothing of um, value or substance in our lives. They don't pay rent. They eat all our food. They take up all my time. My calendar is chock full of driving them to this and to that. And I've got other things to do. They They are an incredibly gross inconvenience in my life. And yet I love them. But, you know, don't they don't pay for gas when i drop them off at school every day they don't pay rent they don't you know sometimes they don't even say thank you for meals that we've cooked you know so but but i love them and of course the hope is that someday as they grow and mature uh that they will reciprocate that love but there is no guarantee and if somebody were to tell me you know what i have a fortune cookie and the fortune cookie is always accurate and this cookie told me your children will not be great adults they will not care for you in your old age if someone told me that I would be heartbroken for sure, but I would not cease to love my children because that's love. Love is an act of will. It's a commitment to go first. It is willing the good of the other, even at great cost to myself. And so that's why love, like true, genuine biblical love, is the path out of self-centric despair. Self-centric despair, the way I define it, is essentially an unremitting gaze inward. It's the inability to see life as anything other than um, a bunch of stuff and desires and longings and things that orbit around you. Self-centric despair is believing the lie that you are the center of all things and that everything needs to gravitationally orbit around you. Love is the path out of that. Love is the way in which we begin to see that the the most joyful life I can live is a life I give away rather than a life in which I try to hoard and attain and create comfort and convenience for myself. So again, a lot more to say to that, but, but those are some, some initial thoughts. Yeah. Uh, what about joy? Let's come on. That's love. Let's come to, look. We won't be able to deal with all of them, but uh, yeah. there, there are a few that fascinate, well, they all fascinate me, but that I wanted to talk about a few particularly joy. Now, what sort of joy does social media and our culture try and sell us? Do you think? Yeah, I think culture at large and social media in particular, what they try to sell us, what they sort of shroud in this 
thin veneer called joy with air quotes is actually beneath the surface. What it is, is pleasure. What culture and social media are really selling us is, is pleasure. In the 90s, there was this British psychologist named Michael Isink, and he coined the phrase, the hedonic treadmill. He said that in the modern Western world, we, most of us, live on a hedonic treadmill. Hedonic meaning hedonism, you know, the pursuit of pleasure. And he called it a treadmill because on a treadmill, you're constantly chasing, but you never arrive. You actually never get anywhere. And um, and essentially what he was saying is that in the late modern Western world, we are so uh, we are so enamored with and desirous of pleasure that we just find ourselves constantly chasing. But that's not joy. Joy is much more long lasting. It's much more um, it's deeper. Uh, it's much more abiding in our lives. You know, we we think about the writer in Hebrews who tells us that Jesus goes to the cross for the joy set before him. Mm-hmm. Now, if joy was pleasure, if joy was something that always just kind of felt good and brought you pleasure, that verse would make no sense that for the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross. It would make no sense whatsoever. It would actually literally be nonsense, right? If joy is pleasure, but that's not joy. Joy is the thing that um, on the far side of pain, on the far side of sacrifice, on the far side of of commitment and, and hardship and toil and labor, um, we realize that there is a sort of meaning infused in our lives that we never could have arrived at had we not gone through the hardship for the sake of another. So uh, I, I think the joy that the fruit of the spirit sort of bears in our lives is that it's it's the sort of deep-seated meaning that is able to withstand not just you know the good times, but the bad times as well. And I think really at the end of the day, that's what everybody wants. Because when we're really honest with ourselves, what we realize is life will not always feel good. That's just not human experience. There are going to be probably many very difficult days. And yet, um, though it may not feel like pleasure, joy is possible in the midst of the pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about peace? Now, we've touched on the anger and hostility that social media creates or often creates or sometimes creates. I wonder how social media, though, does encourage rage and anger. And how do we deal with it? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier. The algorithms on social media are intentionally designed to amplify outrage and outrageous voices. It's the way it works because it those types of interactions online actually get the the most uh, the most engagement and engagement is the bottom line. The more people engage, the higher that social media companies can charge for ads, um, generating ad revenue, uh, and so really they're just trying to keep us engaged. The reality is. If nuanced, thoughtful, kind, gracious, compassionate conversations were the ones that got the most engagement, social media's social media companies would amplify those. It just so happens that that's not the case. You know that it is the most outraged and outrageous conversations and uh, and dialogue online that gets the most engagement. So, you know, as such, living in a digital age where there is so much outrage so much anger, so much vitriol. I think followers of Jesus can can cut through that outrage with peace, with shalom, with the pursuit of right relationship with God and with others. 
it's not easy, but you know, I, I love uh, the prophet Jeremiah who was called the weeping prophet because in his entire book is just so sad, you know, and so dark, but he's got the, these beautiful words in Jeremiah chapter 29, where he is writing to the people of God, literally at their worst, as they are living in exile, essentially slaves uh, to the Babylonian empire. And in their, in their time of enslavement, as they live in a land that is not their own, in the land of their oppressors, Jeremiah says, seek the peace and prosperity of the land where I have exiled you, says the Lord. Because if you seek the peace and prosperity of that land, that will essentially, that will lead to your peace and prosperity. So sometimes social media feels like exile. It feels like the wilderness. It feels like an oppressive state, you know, and when we like, we feel enslaved because of our addictions. Well, God says, seek the peace and prosperity of that place, not prosperity in terms of like the bottom line for the social media company, but the prosperity of the, of the men and women who engage there and seek peace, you know, pursue peace, um, speak with kindness and goodness and, and, uh, you know, extend generosity and hospitality and, nuance and and a listening ear you know to those who are outraged so um it's it's a difficult challenge but that is the invitation of christ how were pastors you personally knew affected by social media hostility during the pandemic oh my goodness yeah so many emails again it's digital courage right it's so easy to send that nasty email to the digital cowardice i would say yeah right right but it feels like courage, you know, on the, on the other side of it. So it's, it's a strange thing. Um, but you're, you're exactly right, Brent. It is really, truly cowardice. Yeah. So many pastors I know, and, and myself as a pastor, you know, one of the most heartbreaking things about the pandemic in particular was just how many emails we got from people who were angry on various sides of the same, of the same argument, you know, pastors could do nothing right during the pandemic. And uh, if you spoke up about a particular issue, you know, one side would say you didn't speak up enough. You weren't clear enough. You didn't name the enemy as decisively. The other side would say, what are you, some sort of progressive liberal now? You're just <laughs> going to be all about these sort of culture wars. This is not the gospel. How dare you? And all sides would be angry. And so so often it'd be like, well, we're, we're leaving. We can't be a part of a church that doesn't speak more clearly about this. And in the same breath, someone on the totally other side of the political, you know, political uh, socioeconomic spectrum would say, we cannot possibly be a part of a church that talks about this stuff. It's just about Jesus and the Bible and the gospel. So that kind of stuff happened. It, it really, it continues to happen, but that kind of stuff happened so much during the pandemic. And, and I will say, honestly, it was heartbreaking. It was exhausting. Oh yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But it was also a great revealer about what was actually discipling and shaping and forming our people. Yes. Final question. I think it's the final question because we're just about out of time. How do we deal with our internet addictions? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So much to say about that. I mean, I guess I'll try to give some, some practical uh, things that, that might be practically helpful here. Um, yeah. Several thoughts come to mind. I mean, one, I would say practice digital Sabbath. So, you know, Andy Crouch recommends one hour a day, one day a week, 
one week a year, if you can. In our family, we practice all three of those. So back in June, we took a family vacation. I deleted everything from my phone, email, social media. I just had like, uh, you know, a reading app so I could read books in the evenings once the kids were in bed and uh, Google Maps, you know, so I knew where I was going. Um, so for an entire week, I just did not engage digitally at all. Uh, one day a week, you know, most Saturdays, we shut off our phones um, for all of our waking hours, at least until the kids are in bed. Um, shut off laptops, no email, no social media. Um, and we usually try to do something embodied. Well, most Saturdays we take our kids for a walk, uh, a small hike. Um, sometimes we'll do park play dates with friends, um, cook a good meal, you know, have a long, long, slow lunch or dinner together. Uh, and then one hour a day, you know, we try to practice one hour a day. And one of the reasons why that is so helpful is because uh, it's a way of detoxing. So if you can practice digital Sabbath on a consistent, regular basis, what it will do is as you detox from your digital engagement, you'll realize how addicted you've become because early on, it will be so challenging to even do one hour a day without your phone and your laptop and your iPad. It's really hard when you first begin. So um, that's probably one key recommendation I would give. There's several others, but you know, if, if people can start with that, I think you'll, you'll, you know, be well on your way. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Jay Kim, uh, pastor of the, the lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley uh, in the States. So he grew up amidst all the digital development and digital technology. Yeah. And the book from IVP into Varsity Press America is called Analog Christian. Uh, cultivating contentment, resilience, and wisdom in the digital age. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Jay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Brent, for having me on. Pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.